What is the greatest verse in all the Bible? Find out today on Changed by Grace. Welcome to Changed by Grace. I'm Pastor Steve Burford. Today we're looking at the greatest verse in the Bible. What makes it the greatest is it gives the greatest truth for all mankind. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Let's learn more about this kind of love today as we look together at John chapter 3 and verse 16. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And this morning we're going to look at probably the most familiar verse in the Bible. John 3.16 and then we'll include verse 17 as well. This is a verse that many of us have learned as little children. I know that that was probably one of the first verses that I had ever learned. And so this morning I desire for us to take an opportunity to look at this this morning as we talk about no greater love. John 3. And I want to read it again, verse 16 and verse 17. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This is what many people have called the gospel in a nutshell. And as we enter into this month of March with having Easter at the end of the month, um, what I desire to do is to take us through a series of messages that lead us up to Easter. And one being here this morning, we're talking about this great love that God has shown to us. We can't find any other greater love than this, than the love that God the Father has poured out on us by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place for our sins. The Bible says in John 15, 13 that greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Amen. Amen. And so this morning, there are actually four elements of love that are found in these two verses that I want to talk about. And the first one, of course, is in verse 16, by beginning with the person of love. Who is the person of love? Well, it tells us here, God is the person of love. It begins in verse 16, for God so loved the world. He is the source of love. Now, he's the source of love because he is love, right? The Bible tells us that he's a God of love. And because we see that, he defines for us what true love is. Love is really best known, uh, or probably one of the best known, but least understood of all the attributes of God. In fact, it in the earlier ages or past generations, people went to uh, very extremes when they would talk about the attributes of God. They tended to think that God was very stern, that he was demanding, he was cruel, that he was even abusive. And so they magnified God's wrath and virtually ignored his love. And little more than 100 years ago, nearly all evangelistic preaching would portray God only as a fierce judge whose fury burned against sinners. Again, there was very little that was said about his love. But God is a God of wrath, of course, but he's also a God of love. The scriptures teach us that, that he is also a God of love. Deuteronomy 7, listen to what this says, and it reveals in verse 6 through 8 that he chose Israel to pour out his love and his object of affection on them. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people. 
For you are the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep his oath, which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There he says that the Lord, he didn't set his love on them. He didn't choose them because they were more in number of all the people. In fact, that they were least. But it was his choice to pour out his love on them. It is his choice today in in terms of who he pours his love out on, is it not? God has a choice. He has a will. In Deuteronomy 10, 15, it says, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them. You above all peoples as it is this day. And then, of course, we even read in Ephesians 2, verse 4, where it talks about us being dead in trespasses and sins. But he chose to pour out his love on us by that great mercy in which he showed us. Love is a supreme title in Scripture. Yes, as I said, God is a God of wrath, but He is also a God of love. And when you think about the attributes of God, these characteristics that are true about Him and about His nature and tell us all of who He is, they're in complete balance with one another. They're in complete harmony. You don't have one more than the other. They are all, like I said, in a complete balance but love is certainly one that is so misunderstood. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, we hear a title in Scripture that calls God the God of love. The God of love. And, of course, many of you are familiar with 1 John four sixteen that tells us God is love. He is love. And, again, that's where we get the ability to love from. It comes from the one who is the source of love, the one who is the supreme of love, and it's God himself. His love, again, is in perfect balance with all of those attributes. The Bible tells us that He is not only a wrathful God, tells us He's a holy God, tells us He's just, He's merciful. Again, these are in perfect balance. Now, and to understand love, you have to understand God. And I believe that this verse right here gives us the very heart. Look at it again. He says that God so loved the world. And then we see here that this love is poured out on an object. And who is this object? It says here it's the world. Thank you that he poured out his love on the world because that included you and I. And if it wasn't for him pouring out his love on us, none of us would be here. None of us would have an opportunity to get right with him. He had to come and provide and meet the very need that you and I have. He had to come and die in our place because his very law that he gave to Moses and to the children of Israel basically said that the soul who sins shall surely die. And we know from Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve were placed in a garden to tend and to keep the garden, but they were told out of all the trees that are in the garden, there's only one that you're to stay away from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the very moment that they would eat of that, the Bible says that they would surely die. And that's exactly what happened. Romans 5 takes what happened in Genesis 3 and it applies it to every human being that would live, every person that would ever live. And so every person would have Adam's sin that sin nature that came from what happened in Genesis 3. And because of that, we needed God to intervene. Because if we had become sinners and we did in Adam, then that basically means that, as Romans 6.23 says, that the wages of sin is death. We're going to die. And if we die, the second death, the second death is dying without Christ. All of us will experience the first death unless we live to see the rapture, but it's the second death that we have to fear. That second death. There is no way 
to be rescued from the second death once you die. When you die and you leave this life, what you were in this life is what you will be in the next. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have received the gospel, you've received salvation, the gift that Jesus gives, you will go into the next life as a believer, saved. You, you will have that reunion with those other family members that knew Jesus. The First Thessalonians 4 passage that we love to read and get encouragement from when we lose a loved one. But the Bible tells us that we will enjoy eternal bliss with God in heaven. But the opposite is also true too. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never surrendered your life and given your life to Him and you die today without having given your life to Him, the Bible says that you will go into eternity without Him. That's the second death. That you will go into a place where there's weeping and the gnashing of teeth. A place of eternal torment. Well, the Bible says it here that He poured out His love on the world. The world is the object of His love. Now that word for world has three meanings. It's interesting that the meanings that it has because it helps us to understand exactly what he's talking about. It's the Greek word cosmos. You probably have heard the word cosmos before. But it refers to three things, one of three things. And you have to determine the context when you're using it. Like, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17, it says, do not love the world. Same word, cosmos. And so you have to ask yourself, what is he talking about? Because it could either be the creation... It can be Satan's evil system, or it can be humanity. Now, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, it's talking about Satan's evil system. Because it's okay to enjoy the creation, and to look out at the creation of what God has made, and to appreciate it, and to be thankful for what God has given to us. The Bible tells us in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth His handiwork. We're not to bow down like Romans 1 and worship the creation, right? We're to worship the Creator. But at the same time, there is this idea of Satan's evil system. In 1 John 2, 15-17, we're not to love that. We're not to love that evil system in which Satan is the head. He is the one that wants to lead us astray, isn't he not? He's the one that wants to destroy our lives. He's a liar. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's a destroyer. And he wants to destroy our lives. And even though as believers he can't have us anymore, that doesn't mean that he can't oppress us. That doesn't mean he can't totally try to destroy our lives. I mean, look at Job. Look at what he experienced. He was a believer in God. That's, that, there's no question about that. But look at the things that, that Satan did to Job. He did everything but kill him. And I can probably guarantee you, if you and I went through what Job went through, we would be saying, God, kill me. Because he was at death's door on all of the things that he experienced. The third meaning is humanity. Is humanity. Now, certainly God doesn't want us to hate humanity. God doesn't want us to hate his creation. But he does want us to stay away from Satan. And I find it even very interesting that the people, people in the church many times will spend more time talking about Satan and less time talking about God. There are certain churches where people will tend to call Satan up in the sense of saying that, you know, Satan, I rebuke you. Satan, I take authority over you. And I think he laughs at that, to be honest with you. Because we really don't have that kind of authority. We're not apostles in the New Testament. We don't have that ability to do what they did. But I would just tend to say this, regardless of that argument, let's spend our time talking to God. Because he is God of gods, Lord of Lord, King of kings. He's the one that we need to be focusing on, right? 
And all Satan is is a creature. Originally, he was an angel, a cherubim, and he fell. And he took a third of the angels with him, according to Revelation chapter 12. And he is a fallen creature, a fallen angel. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 24 that, that hell was created for him and his angels. And one day he will be pinned up. He'll be cast into the lake of fire. There'll be no remedy to him, no salvation. There are no salvation to fallen angels. Salvation is only available for humans, for sons of Adam. You and I are sons of Adam. Now, take those three meanings and let's go here to John chapter 3. It says, for God so loved the world. Is he talking about the creation? Is he talking about Satan's evil system? Or is he talking about humanity? Again, let's take them one at a time. You take creation, Acts 17, 24. It says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And that's, of course, Paul when he was speaking to the Athenians there in Acts chapter 17. And he's telling us God made the world. God made it. Is that what he's talking about here? Well, what about Satan's evil system? Ephesians 2 says that, that he made alive, you he made alive, that is talking about the believers there in Ephesus, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which he once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Is he talking about that? That God so loved Satan? No, I don't think he's talking about that. Or how about humanity? Humanity seems to best fit this. For God so loved humanity. 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction, that's what propitiation means. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. The very death that Jesus died on the cross was sufficient to save everyone. But it's only efficient for his children. You know that everyone's not going to be saved. We know people that we've had in our lifetime that we have had some kind of relationship with that didn't know Jesus. We know people that have died, that went all the way to their deathbed, and unless they repented on their deathbed, they didn't go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach a universal salvation that every person will be saved. The Bible teaches, even when it talks about Israel, even a remnant of Israel being saved and delivered. But it doesn't talk about all Israel. And the same is true for every person. So this word, cosmos, here is referring to humanity. God so loved humanity. He loved the human race. That includes the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men that's alienated from God and therefore hostile to Christ. See, that fits it more because with what else he says in the verse... And it's interesting, John, John is a supporter of this word, cosmos, because he uses it 80 times in this gospel. That's a lot. 80 times. And out of every usage, it's used to speak of either the creation, Satan's evil system, or humanity. And most of the time, it refers to humanity. He begins the gospel using this word to refer to humanity in chapter 1 and verse 9. He uses it to refer both to the creation and humanity in verse 10. He even uses it in John 1.29 to refer to Jesus, whom he refers to as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the what? The world. And so in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and even verse 19, is referring to humanity. Now let me say something about his love for the world and compare it to his love for, the, for his children. It's not the same. 
You realize that? It's not the same. God loves His children in a very special way that's only reserved for them. But that love does not make His love for the rest of humanity any less real. His love for His children is infinite. It's eternal. It's a saving love. We know from Scripture that this great love was the very cause of Him choosing us, the very cause of Him bringing us to Himself. Ephesians 2.4 And this love clearly is not directed to all of mankind indiscriminately, but it's bestowed uniquely and individually on those whom God has chosen in eternity past. J.C. Ryle says that this wonderful verse, John 3.16, has been justly called by Luther the Bible in miniature. No part of it perhaps is so deeply important as the first five words, God so loved the world. The love here spoken of is not that special love with which the Father regards His own elect, but that mighty pity and compassion with which He regards the whole race of mankind. Its object is not merely the little flock which He has given to Christ from all eternity, but the whole world of sinners without any exception. There is a deep sense in which God loves that world. All whom He has created He regards with pity and compassion. You know, the Bible even says that he doesn't have any pleasure in the death of the wicked. That right there gives us a glimpse of the heart of God. God so loved the world. And what does he mean now when he says that he gave? I mean, this is really the essence of true love, is it not? That when you really love somebody and you have totally died to yourself, it's not all about you, that you love someone to the point that you give yourself. And here the essence of this, or the greatest expression, is that He gave His only begotten Son. God sent Jesus to the world. You know, Jesus' mission when He came here was only one mission. Seek and to save the lost. That was His mission. And then die in their place. You know, I know every Christmas we adore the manger scenes. It's sad that some people, that, that's all they think about when they think of Christ. But those little pink hands were meant to have spikes nailed right through them. Same as His feet. And that little precious body that was a child grew up and a spear would be put in His side. And that head would one day have a crown of thorns pushed into His brow. He did that for us. And that's the greatest expression of love that God sent His Son, He gave His Son to die for us. True love gives. And when you look at John's Gospel here, it doesn't offer the world a superficial idea of the love of God. It offers, offers us a great true meaning of what love is. Here the word loved and gave, here they express the genuine self-giving nature of God and having sent His only Son on an unrepeatable mission into the world. See, the sacrifice that Jesus did on our behalf, it was perfect, never having to be repeated again. One time, that's why it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, when He offered that sacrifice of Himself on the cross, that He sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you take the whole priestly role, the priest had no chairs in the temple. There was no place for him to sit. They had to go in, offer the incense, offer these sacrifices, 
and then they would come out. In fact, many times they would tie something to them because if that one time a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would splatter blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And if something happened in there, no one could go in there and get him. So they would tie a rope around his leg and if something happened, they would drag him out. And usually if you have to drag him out, he's dead. You read uh, Leviticus, uh, Nadab and Abihu, they offered up strange fire to the Lord. Leviticus 10 tells us that God killed them. And they had to drag them out because they couldn't go in there. There were only certain people that could go in there. But here Jesus was the great high priest and the sacrifice that he made of himself was one time never to be repeated. He did it one time and sat down. A priest in Old Testament times had to constantly offer those sacrifices. Jesus offered himself one time. And again, the greatest sacrifice, of course, is a demonstration of love. God gave His only begotten Son. Only begotten, it basically means unique. It's not a reference to Him being created, as some of the cults want us to believe, but it is a term speaking about Him being unique. John uses that term four times in this Gospel, over in chapter 1 and also chapter 3. He uses it in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. And the term itself even occurs 16 times in the New Testament to speak of an only child. Some have translated John 3.16 this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So it just means only or unique Son. And when you read that phrase, it should remind us of Genesis 22. Notice in Genesis 22, you remember when Abraham was told to go up to Mount Moriah and offer his son Isaac to the Lord? We're told in verse 2, He says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, or you could say your only begotten son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And you know the story. He rose up early in the morning, saddled his donkey. He took the provisions. They took people with him, his servants with him, because they were going to have a sacrifice. And so they needed the items for the sacrifice. But again, that verse, verse 2, points out that Isaac was his son of promise. Isaac was his only son. And Hebrews 11 tells us the faith of Abraham was simply this, that if he had to kill his son, God was going to resurrect him because he was the son of promise. He was the son in whom God would build all the nations. The Bible tells us that he believed that God would resurrect him. And so he was obedient, was he not? And he went and did that. Well, God so loved his son or loved the world and he loved his son enough to send him to us and then he says of course that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him now what do you do with all this that you just heard this is where we get to the appropriation of his love the appropriation of his love it has to be appropriated in your life How do you do that? Well, the new birth is obtained by believing. By believing. He says, again, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever, what? Believes. Believes. Verse 15, He uses the word believe. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He uses it again over in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. What does he mean by believe? Well, 
First of all, believing is a work of God. John 6, 29 says that this is the work of God that you believe in Him and whom He has sent. We know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that this is a work of God. It says, for by grace you have been saved and that not of yourselves. It is the what? Gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's a work of God. It's a gift from God. Let's go back over to chapter 2. And I had us read in the scripture reading, beginning at verse 23, because he uses the word believe and then he defines it. Notice verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, this is John 2, 23. During the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Now, the word believed in verse 23, New Testament was written in Greek. Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The Greek word pistis that's used in verse 23 is the same word used in verse 16, where it says that whoever believes in him, same word, okay? Now, what does it mean? Does it mean that we just believe some facts? We have a mental assent? Or does it mean more than that? Well, I want to contend to you that it means more than that, because look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That word entrusting or commit is the same word. It's the same word translated believe. He's telling us what he means. Go back into John 3 and go to verse 36. You see again what he means. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe, or other translations correctly translate it this way, by saying that he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what's he meaning here? What's it mean to believe? It means to commit. It means to commit. You know what? You live your life based upon what you believe. You and I do that. That's how we function. You believe something about this church for you to come. You believe something about those pews that you're sitting on. Otherwise, you wouldn't sit there. If you didn't trust them, you wouldn't sit there. Right? We live by faith every day. You go to the water fountain and you press the button for water to come out. You believe that that water is going to be safe for you to drink. You go to a restaurant. You believe that the person in the back is not poisoning the food. And that it's safe to eat it. Is it not? You get in your car and you believe that your car is safe enough that you can drive it 65 miles an hour or more. Yeah, I start with 65 because that's where we should be, right? Or 70. I think speed limit 70 on 95. So we believe. And therefore we live based upon those beliefs. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven then you would follow Him. You would commit your life to Him. All the disciples that came to Jesus, we know a few of them that Jesus went to them and said, follow me. Are you following the Lord Jesus Christ? The message that you've heard today is called No Greater Love from John chapter 3 and verse 16. This message is available on CD for a gift of $5, or you can download from our website at www.changedbygrace.org. On our website, you can find many messages like this that will help you to understand what Jesus Christ has done for you and how you can come to know Him. 
Well, I'm Pastor Steve Herford. I want to thank you for joining us today. I do hope that you'll join us again next time as we study together from God's Word.